Hello and welcome to Suburbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Isabel Peñaranda Curry, and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley's City and Regional Planning Department. If you like this episode, click subscribe, leave us a review, and please tell your friends. The question of inequality haunts the global north and south as economic, racial, and other forms of inequality appear to grow deeper and to more devastating effects. But although this is a global problem, it's not an inevitable or homogenous one, and local actors can have a role in responding to it. This is why in today's episode we ask, why are some cities more equal than others? To answer this question, Flavia Leche and I talked to Ben Bradlow, an associate research scholar and lecturer at Princeton University. He's trained as a sociologist and a city planner, has a PhD in sociology from Brown University and a master's in city planning from MIT. And his first book, Urban Power, is currently under contract with Princeton University Press and asks, why are some cities more effective than others at reducing inequality? Through a South-South comparison of Sao Paulo and Johannesburg, Ben argues that some cities are better at reducing inequality than others because of their degree of embeddedness and cohesion. To find out what this means exactly, listen on. All right, so welcome everybody to a new episode of Sur Urbano. We're here with our three-time co-host, Flavia Leche. Flavia, (laughs) what does it feel like to be on Sur Urbano three times? I think that I should be promoted to deputy or vice host, right? Done. <laughs> you got <laughs> it. We're also here with Ben Bradlow, who we actually met um, recently and got to hear about his book. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. Longtime listener, first time podcaster. Very excited to be here. Yay, we have fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Ben, because you've heard Sururbana before, you know we always start each episode asking oh, your favorite place to grab a beer or coffee in Sao Paulo or Johannesburg, I guess in this case. Best place to go for a drink in the center of Sao Paulo is the Samba da Trezi in Bexiga on a Friday oh night. Oh my God. And that's just where I've had many great times. And then I used to live in the center of the city near the iconic Estadal Lanchonetti, which has these great pork and pineapple sandwiches. Um, oh, wow. Which is just like an iconic place to be in the center of the city. So I wanted to cite that one as well. I have to second that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in Joburg, it's also hard to say, but um, the place that I used to go when I was a bit younger was Kitchener's Bar there. But I think uh, I might be a bit too old for that now. Nonsense. <laughs> we know you have a BA in history, a master's in city planning, and a PhD in sociology, all from U.S. universities. And at the same time, your research is centered on urban inequality, climate change, and and the political challenges for democracy in the global south. So tell us more about your background and what drove you to this issue. In terms of my formal training, certainly it doesn't feel like it's been a very straight path. And I have these different concentrations at different kinds of degrees that I've done. I guess the issues are what interest me, and that's what drives me to these different kinds of disciplinary trainings. My my family is South African, and my parents moved back there about 15 years ago in, in Johannesburg. It's a city I've known all my life. Um, I worked there for a number of years, also worked in Cape Town for some years. Um, and when I began working straight out of college, I arrived in Joburg and 
wanted to work as a journalist during the presidential campaign uh, of 2009. And this was the campaign that uh, resulted in the election of Jacob Zuma as president. And what I wanted to do, um, I was working for one of the daily newspapers in Johannesburg, was follow around the different political parties as they were mobilizing on the ground in Johannesburg and just to see how do political parties in South Africa mobilize uh, at the grassroots level. This led me to encounters in informal settlements in Joburg that I didn't know previously. And it was basically like I was calling up party branches and they were saying, well, if this is what you want to do, then just come with us on this day. This is where we're working. And so that began to give me a familiarity and an interest with informality in the city. And I continued doing some stories and some of the informal settlements. And as that interest grew, I started, I, I made a, an early career move to work as uh, initially as a researcher for a network of movements that are based in informal settlements, not just in South African cities, but across a number of countries in Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and a little bit in Latin America called um, Slum Dwellers International or Shack Dwellers International. Mm -hmm. And that was where I really got a comparative and global sense of how informality and urbanization is really one of the key macro dynamics of the times we're living in. And I discovered that there was this type of person I had never thought about before, which is called an urban planner. And I realized these people seem to be kind of in all the spaces that seem to be of interest to me, and maybe I should go figure out what this is. And that led me to pursue a master's in city planning. And it was there that I first read sociological texts that I had never encountered as an undergrad. And so it's kind of from this following my nose kind of sensibility that I arrived at sociology as a discipline, but that I certainly did not think that this was how this period of my life was going to play out. But I'm happy to know that you also have a background in journalism. So it's more multidisciplinary than we even thought. Yeah, it's a, I mean, look, there are all these disciplinary conventions and disciplinary questions um, and ways of framing problems, but so much of work in the social sciences and in policy relies on storytelling. And sure. that's why I think journalism is a great mm -hmm. thing to <laughs> to go into. Yeah. And, it, and it opens up a lot of other ways of thinking. Great. So let's move into your papers. In your paper, Embeddedness and Cohesion, Regimes of Urban Public Goods Distribution, you ask, why do some urban governing regimes realize a more equal distribution of public goods than others? So you kind of told us how you got to sociology. But how did you land upon this particular research question? Well, when I started my doctorate, I knew I wanted to compare Johannesburg with, with somewhere. This is a bit of a, a prelude because the paper that you're referring to is primarily about Sao Paulo. I knew I wanted to do something about inequality in cities. At first, I thought maybe I would look at something about employment and the labor market in cities. Um, but what I realized quite early on is that looking at the city scale or particularly municipal institutions is not a very relevant starting point for thinking about labor markets because labor markets are shaped um, by so many factors that 
are at a higher scale. Really, these are national economies and a global economy. But what I realized municipalities do matter a lot for were precisely the issues that I had been working on for a long time, issues around the distribution of what some social scientists would call goods of collective consumption, what other social scientists would refer to as public goods, things like housing, sanitation, and transportation. And I thought, well, what I want this project to be about is understanding variation in how municipal governing institutions manage the distribution of public goods. I started the research by comparing Johannesburg and Sao Paulo, and the book that I'm finishing now is rooted in that comparison. But in this paper, what I wanted to do is to try to understand variation even within a single city. And Sao Paulo, I, as a, as I, after I'd done a lot of research in Sao Paulo and got to know the city well and had done a ton of interviews there, I realized that there was important variation across time in Sao Paulo. And it wasn't just kind of like a secular trend of getting better over time or getting worse over time, but that there were actually different periods where things went well in some respects, other periods that really didn't look very good at all, other periods that looked kind of like the best case scenario and in kind of things in between. And so I wanted in that in this paper, I wanted to theorize precisely that variation. What I arrived at were two concepts that together can describe configurations of regimes of urban public goods distribution. And the first is what I call the embeddedness of the local state in civil society. And the second is what I call the cohesion of the local state. I was also drawn by your argument that a lot of the literature, while you write, scholarly tendency has been to explain urban exclusions as determined by the structural role of cities in a globalized integration of markets. And yeah, there is this like macro structural, like we are in a neoliberal moment and cities are sites of the reproduction of inequality. But I feel like you give a lot of, or you rescue some agency for cities to impact this distribution and not just take it as given that this is gonna be the state of affairs. No, absolutely. That that is that is part of the agenda. In a way, that's that's how I would say my sensibility as a planner is mm -hmm. coming through work that that is sociological. Which is to say, there's there's a group of people. This this is what I learned as a planner. There's a group of people whose entire reason for being is to figure out what intervention means in mm -hmm. in in highly unequal spaces. Um, with highly unequal social problems. And to intervene means to assume some degree of agency. So in a way, this paper is to try is trying to understand, well, what are the possibilities of agency in the city? And also, what are the limits? So yeah. we know very well cities are sites of the re reproduction of inequality. But, you know, not all cities reproduce inequality in the same way. In fact, there are very meaningful reductions in inequality. And we need to capture those because these mean something very significant for the people who are living uh, that reduction of inequality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we were reading our your paper, I particularly, when I read the word embeddedness, I like immediately thought about Greta Vedder and, and perhaps like this are, this is the author and the concept that people are most familiar with when they hear the word embeddedness. But I think like that in this paper, you're not using embeddedness the same way as his. And I was wondering, if you could just tell our listeners how you could 
like these categories of urban public goods distribution. So I, you know, I'm always wary of going too deep into the the theoretical literature in a podcast like this. But, it, yeah. you know, one thing that I, I really want to underscore on the issue of the term embeddedness is that one of the ways that scholars in development have talked about agency amid very structural conditions of dependence uh, for low and middle income countries is to look at the cases of national developmental catch up, particularly in the East Asian cases, the so-called tigers, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, etc. And, you know, one of the, the classic works that really inspired me to work in sociology was Peter Evans's Embedded Autonomy, which is one of the classic works that really theorizes in comparative perspective why some countries are able to buck the structural dynamics of dependence in a quote-unquote world globalized world system and why others aren't. So the concept of embeddedness that Evans uses is in part certainly uh, in reference to Granovetter, but it's also in reference to this older tradition of embeddedness that comes from Karl Polanyi and most famously in his book, The Great Transformation, mm -hmm. which is looking at the degree to which the market is subordinated to other kinds of social norms beyond just uh, market uh, commodity-based transactions. And so I define embeddedness as the ties of the local state to civil society that produce the ideas and space within bureaucratic agencies for redistributive policy change. And then the second term, this term cohesion, Evans talks about embedded autonomy that the state must be both embedded with a, a kind of broader social actor and that it must have the autonomy to act by itself. But there, there are a lot of, when he's talking about national agencies, it, there are a lot of differences when, once you get down to the municipal scale. And what I'm concerned with in using the term cohesion is to look at the coordinating capacity of the local state implement policy changes. And it's that coordinating capacity that's particularly critical here. And it's not just a general form of what we often call um, in the development literature state capacity. And that's because municipal government is distinctive. And it's distinctive because it's delegated through a national regulatory framework. And cohesion is supposed to capture these distinct dimensions of coordinating that delegated authority. So it's about coordinating across line agencies within the city, which is, we can think of as a kind of horizontal cohesion. And it's coordinating across scales of government, local, state, or provincial, national, or federal government, a vertical cohesion. I wonder if you could tell us what they look like. And we're talking about the Sao Paulo case specifically between the years between 1989 and 2006. So we were wondering, how did you identify and what are the manifestations of different configurations of embeddedness of the, lo uh, of the local state and civil societies in Sao Paulo? And the same about cohesion. So the first uh, directly elected Democratic mayor 
in Sao Paulo after Brazil's transition to democracy was Luis Arangina in 1989 from the Workers' Party, the PT. And her administration is what I describe as a high-embedded, low-cohesion mayoral or urban regime. You have very strong social movements, particularly housing movements, that form a key part of the social bloc that brought Erungina to power. She was a social worker with ties, very personal ties to uh, a lot of the housing movements in the city, particularly in the eastern zone of the city. And when she gets into office, she brings in a core of bureaucrats who also have ties to those movements. And she instructs them that movements must have very regular access to those bureaucratic agencies. And this I found through my interviews with, with both movement leaders and both high-ranking and low-level bureaucrats during this time enabled the proliferation of self-built housing projects that are known in Portuguese as mutirão projects. And these projects not only allowed for movements to manage new construction of housing, but it also enabled delivery of water and sanitation services to previously unserviced areas of the city. But the problem was that there was a limited fiscal capacity. In this period, there was a national inflationary crisis during this period. And ultimately, uh, Erungina did not win re-election. And then you, for most of the 90s, you see a very reactionary period, most famously associated with the infamous now Congressman Paulo Malouf. I think he's still in the new Congress. Or is, is he out now? <laughs> he's very old. <laughs> He's 91 now, yeah. but he's not in Congress. Okay. <laughs> he's famously associated with the Portuguese phrase, Hoba mais faz. He steals, but he gets things done. But in, when he was mayor in Sao Paulo, he was most famous <laughs> for um, basically infrastructure projects like um, big road construction that um, just benefited a very specific set of elites built very few housing projects that were very strategically placed to hide favelas, to hide slums from view of major roads, um, and his government pursued a lot of evictions. This is what I call a rentier regime, where you have low embeddedness and low cohesion. And then there's this period that begins under a PT mayor in 2000, Marta Suplicy, where she brings in a lot of the same bureaucratic core that had first had these municipal governing experiences under the Erungina administration. But she ends up, particularly after 2001 and 2002, once the PT reaches or wins the national election, with a much greater degree of uh, fiscal capacity, injection of funds that are coming from the national government, as well as a lot of new planning tools, legal authorities that are generated at the local level, that in particular allow the city to designate land where individual land title has not been finalized, it, but you can still begin to upgrade the infrastructure of those areas. And you start to see a takeoff um, in the upgrading of informal settlements that's quite substantial. And this continues and is uh, taken up in some cases quite enthusiastically by um, a center-right governing coalition that followed um, the PT mayoral administration of Marta Suplicy. So that's what I call uh, an integrationist regime where you have high embeddedness 
and high cohesion. And then kind of curiously, the paper ends with the administration of Fernando Haddad, who's currently the, um, the finance minister under Lula, but he was then the third PT mayor in the city. And it's during his administration from 2013 to 16 that you actually see a much more arm's length kind of relationship between the PT local government and housing movements in the city and much more of an explicit orientation towards pursuing projects that really are legitimized through targeting economic growth and not primarily, or at least with the same emphasis, on redistribution. And that's what I call a managerial regime, where you have high cohesion, very strong capacities that have developed within the local government, particularly in this period of the 2000s, but much more distance from a sphere of housing movements. Just out of curiosity, and I think this also brings us into the question of methods, like it's a very compelling narrative. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your methods were to even establish that there were these degrees of embeddedness. What I did was largely interview-based. You know, I developed interview guides for different types of actors. Basically, I was interviewing anybody in the public sector, anybody in the private sector, anybody in the movement sector who was engaged in policy struggles over housing, sanitation, and transportation. And in the book, I have a chapter on each of these goods. The paper, the Theory and Society paper that you refer to is largely focused on housing and to the extent it's focused on sanitation, it's generally through the lens of how land use law connects housing and sanitation. And there, there's a real historical, almost archival component to conducting these kinds of interviews where there is some written mm -hmm. record, you know, certainly relying on archives and newspapers and trade publications and NGO publications. But a lot of this stuff just hasn't been documented. Mm -hmm. uh, and so... I was doing a lot of triangulating across interviews to see, well, are different stories being repeated so that I can say that these are these are reliable accounts or, you know, where, where there's differences, trying to figure out, well, why are different people saying different things? And the, the periodization that I came to was partly through what people were saying. So particularly when you, when you talk about the Erungina administration, people across the board, including people who didn't like Erungina, have a very clear take that this was a very specific period in the city. Like when mm -hmm. I talked to some private property developers who had been working since that time, they had very nasty things to say about Erangina at some points, but they were very clear that this was a very distinct yeah. period. You know, in some ways, when I talk to people in Sao Paulo about this research, what is at least somewhat debated is the way that I bring together the second PT administration of Marta Suplicy and the subsequent center-right administrations under Jose Seja and Gilberto Casabi. But this was something that, that came to me in part through how movements talked about this period. In a way, movements saw the PT administration under Suplicy as being very different from the subsequent center-right administrations because they had these much more organic ties with the PT. But when they talked about the work that they did during this period and the kinds okay. of projects that they were pursuing, there was a degree of continuity that I thought was really important. Inevitably, mm -hmm. 
politically appointed bureaucrats and, and politicians will define themselves against their predecessors in all kinds of ways. So as a researcher, one has to find ways to adjudicate, well, what is kind of the normal, uh, basically like political to and fro and distinction making and mm -hmm. uh, what might lie underneath the surface of that rhetoric of distinction. And I have to say that the work of Ardo Marquis and the, the research group that he has at the University of Sao Paulo and the Center for Metropolitan Studies I'm going to do a shout out to a previous episode we had on this podcast. A great yes, episode, and it's a, and that episode is about one of the best books about Sao Paulo politics that that listeners can find. It's available in both Portuguese. And I think the English version has also come out now. But the, the work that was happening in that research center, which I had an affiliation with and participated with for some time, really influenced how I thought mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. the city. Mm -hmm. I think there's also another one of the contributions of this article is how you understand the sequential process. The embeddedness of the local state and housing movements generated a dense web of interpersonal ties between bureaucrats and activists that could transmit political will and trust for implementing policies. And then you go on to say, in turn, this embeddedness produced a multidimensional coordinating capacity within the local state, cohesion, that traversed political party lines to implement plans and give redistributive policies staying power. Over time, the strength in local state capacity to deliver a more inclusive distribution of public goods. So could you talk a little bit about why the sequence matters and kind of flesh out what what happened in, across these four different kinds of regimes, I guess? Basically, you see that in terms of the two factors that I argue are important, this embeddedness and cohesion, embeddedness goes up and down and there's a secular tendency towards increased cohesion across time. That means that the political party of the PT in, in particular is responsible when it wins elections, it's able to bring movements into the bureaucratic sphere. So that the, the election of the PT, when it happens, induces a key part of that embeddedness story. But there are other conditions that have to be available within the bureaucracy itself, both within the local state and across local, in Brazil, it's local state and federal government, that can enable embeddedness to then induce that kind of increased cohesion. And so that's what I'm trying to get at with the sequencing. The configuration of these two factors at different points in time will have a great degree of impact as to whether embeddedness can induce that cohesion or if embeddedness is uh, ultimately too vulnerable to reaction from traditional mm. elites. Or at the end of the story, I actually talk about how when you have a, this kind of elusive integrationist configuration of embeddedness and cohesion, it has its own temptation, particularly or even for a center-left administration like Haddad's PT administration, where you say, well, we have so much capacity now within local government. We don't need to tend to our, our ties and connections with the movement sphere as we have had to in the past. And you see a much more arm's length kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, why did you choose a comparative approach? And in your view, more broadly, what are the advantages of, and disadvantages of this perspective? I started this project looking to compare Johannesburg with somewhere. In a way, 
what I was trying to do was to defamiliarize Johannesburg. I had a lot of que- that's where I had a lot of questions. And Sao Paulo became a place where I could try to understand those questions in a very different way than than what I was used to in the literature on Johannesburg, in my own experiences in Johannesburg, in my own experiences in other cities. And so, you know, comparison as a logic, I think, is is very useful for getting analytical leverage on any kind of problem, being able to understand why things are one way in in one place or one situation versus another way in another place or situation is kind of like the heart of the social scientific imagination. What I think opened a lot of intellectual doors for me was this paper on Sao Paulo, this, this theory and society piece where I realized I could actually compare within a single city. I started by trying to defamiliarize Johannesburg. When I Once I was in Sao Paulo, I said, I need to defamiliarize Sao Paulo. And I'm going to do that in this case, not by bringing in another city altogether, but by trying to figure out ways to kind of carve this up into different cities through time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, it's all about the comparative logic in that sense. And ultimately, particularly in the book, what I'm trying to do in making a broader argument about how to think about urbanization and urban politics and the distribution of urban public goods in cities across the global south and even beyond just the global south in the contemporary moment or over the last 30 or so years is to use two cities that have a lot of similarities, particularly in terms of the role of democratic transition in shaping urban governance. Because one of the key questions that urban theorists keep coming back to is what are the democratic possibilities of urban life and urban governance? And two of the places that most fired the imagination of the world around the possibilities of democracy over the last half century have been Brazil and South Africa, which both transitioned to democracy in the late 80s and early 90s with very similar alignments of trade union federation, urban movements, and very strong and organized political parties of the left that both have carried a lot of promise for people all around the world for thinking about to what degree can middle-income countries build inclusive welfare state and democratic regimes. And this, this broader project is trying to look at that question from the perspective of the city. Now, in terms of the disadvantages of comparative work across cities, basically I would recommend it, but there is a big practical challenge, which is that it's extremely hard to get to know multiple cities across countries. And like Sao Paulo, I didn't really know anything about Brazil when I started my PhD. I didn't know Portuguese. Like these are these are very basic things. So, you know, there's a lot of startup costs, learning a new language, learning a new, you know, you you can't just go into Brazil and say, I'm going to learn the last 30 years of history. You got to learn the last 500 years of history. So, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it and you got to spend a lot of time there. But that's extremely rewarding. And, you know, that to, that's that's how you build a, a comparative 
social scientific imagination. And I feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to do something like that and to continue to build that kind of work mm. even now. Plus, you get twice as many good places to eat and drink. Exactly. So. And then I can recommend them on your podcast. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I really like your the way you identify historical work as itself kind of comparative because there is a denaturalizing to thinking that the way things are now have not always been so. And mm -hmm. so I, I like that a lot. We also wanted to zero in on a particular argument that you make. So your research downplays this idea of a growth machine, which is comes out of Logan and Molotov, which operates in Sao Paulo and Johannesburg. So we're also switching into the next paper. What you show is that it's not a coalition between businesses and political elites aiming to maximize economic growth that led to redistributional outcomes that we saw in both places, but rather it was the relationship with social movements, which I think is very important to highlight in, in times like these. So could you talk a little bit about what the particularities of these two cases are on the growth machine framing and whether it's, well, on its limitations, basically? So the growth machine literature most commonly associated with John Logan and Harvey Malich and their book Urban Fortunes largely you know that book is written about the US and i think it identified an extremely resonant set of dynamics about the mm -hmm. ways that elites with an interest in the property market of the city and local political elites have the tendency to be the strongest force determining the course of urban political economy in cities. And the argument was made about cities in the US, but I think that argument has had a lot of staying power because there's certainly something across many, if not all cities, that feels familiar in that mm -hmm. argument. Both Johannesburg and Sao Paulo certainly resonate with that argument. I do argue around it in a bit, but what, what I would say is that that argument is describing what we might almost think of as the sun in the solar system of urban political economy, that the, the nexus of property-based business elites and local political elites is always very strong. But what I'm suggesting is it's not over-determinative of the outcomes of cities. Mm -hmm. And that there's this there's this broader interplay, particularly in cases where you have had this strong social mobilization. You have had this democratic transition that was driven through urban movements. You have the potential for a significant countervailing force to the gravitational pull of the sun that is local property <laughs> elites and local political elites. And what I found in... Sao Paulo is that this nexus of business and political elites really exists. I would go, it, like I saw it visually because I would go into meetings in municipal buildings and I would see the developers that I had spoken to walking in and out of that building. You know, like it was very visceral to me. And there's a lot of literature in Sao Paulo that that has has documented this. So it's this is not like I would never say that this does not exist. I've seen it with my own eyes. In Johannesburg, it also certainly exists. But what I found was two key mitigating factors in Johannesburg. 
The first is that the property sector, it's, it is changing a bit now, but quite slowly, has historically been white. And what happened in local government after 94 was that you had a lot of, you had the entrance of largely black political leaders who are coming through the African National Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela, the ANC. And that meant that there was a kind of uh, there was a kind of unusual distance that existed between the local state and the private property sector that carried with it, I argue, some possibility for opening up that countervailing pressure to the imperatives of private market-based development. And in the paper published in City and Community that you referred to that's entitled Weapons of the Strong, I describe some strategies that the largely white property sector used to undermine redistributive reforms that local government introduced without directly attacking those reforms. So they found mm -hmm. strategies to ring fence their tax contributions so mm -hmm. they would only be spent in very specific parts of the city instead of cross-subsidizing development in the poorest areas of the city. They found ways to game permit application processes so that they ended up developing in places that really strained the fiscal capacity of the local state by, by forcing investments in bulk infrastructure that took away from investments in infrastructure in very poor neighborhoods. And on the other hand, you had a local government that despite the fact that it had what might have appeared to be an opportunity to generate countervailing power to the traditional property sector, through the movement sector. You had a local government that took a very explicit, explicit and ideological decision um, that basically the movements must stand down and that there was going to be a vanguard of cadre bureaucrats within the local government that were going to take the redistributive project forward and that movements would only impede their effectiveness. And what turned out, what it turned out is that without that that maintenance of social pressure from below, local government found itself in a very isolated position when it came face to face with these relatively subterranean strategies of traditional mm. property elites who were largely, if not exclusively, white. So in your historical analysis of the Sao Paulo case, you look at the municipal administrations from 1988 when Brazil transitioned to democracy until 2016. You are that the center-right government of Serra and Kassab, they put distributional priorities on a more durable and programmatic path compared to the left-wing administration of Haddad between 2013 and 2016. Our question is, to what extent do you think it is a contradiction that a right-wing administration or administrations such as the Senate and Kassab one had a closer relationship with housing movements than the Haddad, which was on the left? So what do you think explains the declining influence of this redistributive policy agenda in the left-wing government compared to a right-wing government in the case of Mbappé? So the, the, the progression is certainly a curious one. I the one modification I would make to your question is I don't think movements had a strong political relationship with the Sehang and Kasabi administrations. In fact, movements often described a lot of frustration that they had with some of the key political principles of that time. But what struck me 
was how much work was actually happening on the ground during that time. And what that suggested to me was that there was a more institutionalized uh, arrangement by which movements and bureaucrats could interact and do work together on the ground. So, so, so yeah, I, I, I think that what, what's important here is that it's not all being mediated at the top political level, but it's about what was becoming institutionalized underneath in the bureaucratic sphere. But then when you have, the, when you have Haddad come into office, the PT returning to office in 2013, you, you have a couple of things that are going on. And first is there's a high expectation from movements that they are going to begin to have that kind of top-level intermediation that they have had with previous PT administrations in which they don't expect and don't try to have in some ways with center-right administrations. But there were a couple of, of mediating events and a general orientation of the Haddad administration that made a difference. So first... When I interviewed Haddad, he referred to his desire to build what he called a socio-environmental coalition that would support his administration. And this was explicitly a view that would bring in a kind of middle-class environmentalist sensibility within the boundaries of the working-class PT coalition. So there's the sense that the coalition should at least expand beyond its working-class base when Haddad is building his election and shaping his cabinet. The, the second is that in order to secure a majority in the city council, Haddad has to do the usual Brazilian toing and froing of handing out area appointments to different political parties. And he hands the housing secretary position to the Partido Popular, the Pepe, which actually was the party of Paulo, the infamous Paulo Malu, um, in order to secure their vote in the city council. And this is, this is kind of a moment of major betrayal that was described to me by a number of housing movement leaders. And then finally, the, the role of national policy changed the orientation of movements towards city government. And in particular, the role of the national housing subsidy program, Minha Casa, Minha Vida, My House, My Life, meant that national government became much more of a target for housing movements to pursue projects. And there was there's a part of the Minha Casa, Minha Vida program called Entidades, which is particularly focused on delivering subsidies to projects that are managed by housing cooperatives and movements. So there was a, a shift in attention, a shift in scalar attention by the movements themselves. So when you take those different things together, you end up with a local government administration that's operating at much more arm's length from its historic base in the housing movement sphere in Sao Paulo. I think it's really interesting how you identify the role that national government can play in what appear to be very local decision making. And I, a conversation we had with Maria Mercedes Maldonado, and I think also with Eduardo, is just how absent sometimes the, the national scale can be in terms of like urban policies, but how big this impact can be when they do, do like, even when they're not actively trying to intervene on the local level. But we wanted to end with a question about social movements again. So 
I think a lot of the comparative democratization and redistribution studies and just generally works on the left has fo have focused on more traditional actors such as unions and parties. But in your research and by assuming a more local look, you find that there are different kinds of influential organizations and actors at the urban scale and housing movements is one of the main ones. So I guess it's a two-part question. The first is, how strong do you think this alliance between the state and the movements is right now in the case of Sao Paulo? And also, what are the organizations and actors that you see as decisive for achieving redistributive outcomes now, not only in Sao Paulo, but more generally? Like, what is the role of social movements in the present moment that, I don't know, our listeners and beyond can can learn from? Housing movements in Sao Paulo are still very important. And one thing that struck me in my research is how there are multiple generations of housing movements in Sao Paulo. And there's a there's th this kind of recursive experience of, of generating and spawning new kinds of movements is, is really interesting to understand in Sao Paulo. So the first generation starts in the peripheries, largely within the municipal boundaries of Sao Paulo. Mm -hmm. The second generation emerges in the inner city occupations, in the abandoned buildings in the 2000s. And then you have a third generation that's most famously associated with the MTST, the, the homeless workers movement. Most of their work, actually, despite the fact that in the press they're sometimes associated with inner city occupations, most of their work on the ground is really in the metropolitan peripheries, many of which are just outside of the municipal boundaries of Sao Paulo. And what's one good way to know that these movements still matter is that the guy who's almost certainly going to be the candidate of the left in Sao Paulo, mm -hmm. Guilherme Bolus, is the leader of this MET, MTST. And this is the basically his power is so strong as a as a political figure that it will be the it, it appears to be shaping up to be the first time that the PT will not field a mayoral candidate in Sao Paulo. And even in the previous municipal election, the PT did field a candidate who actually has quite strong grassroots ties in the southern zone of the city, the former transport secretary, Gilmar Tato. Yeah. And the Tato family is very famous among Palestanos, and especially in the Zona Sul, the southern zone. Yeah. The, by the time Bolus was well under his candidacy was well underway, the PT ran a very weak campaign because it became clear that Bolus was capturing all of the energy yeah. on the left. So housing movements are clearly very important in Sao Paulo, and they have a very strong capacity for renewal and regeneration, which goes against a lot of the prevailing theory about how movements rise and fall. There's a lot of expectation in the social movement literature that movements have very distinct shelf lives. And I think one thing that explains that is that housing movements in Sao Paulo and maybe in Brazil more generally don't operate in isolation. And there's a lot of interconnection between movements focused on housing to the union movement, to the black movement, to the environmental movement. And I think one of the key things that we have to look at now, it's clear that the movement sphere was critical to bringing Lula back to power, 
to preserving the legitimacy of Lula's election in the face of a somewhat farcical but still quite serious attack in the beginning of the year to undermine his election, the legitimacy of his election. And I think one of the most critical questions in the near term in Brazil and in Sao Paulo is the extent to which movements like housing, the black movement, the environmental movement can continue to build those connections and to, to build you know, the future of the left in a country that remains quite divided and where power and redistrib- questions of redistribution remain quite contested. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much. And I look forward to meet you in Sao Paulo, perhaps for sandwich in Estadão. Yeah, I'll see you at Estadão. Thanks to, thanks to you yeah. and Isabel for having me on. Sur Urbano is a product of Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at Latam underscore cities on Twitter, or write to me at ipenarandac on Instagram or Twitter.